Welcome back to the Virtually Agile podcast. I knew you couldn't stay away. In today's episode, I'm joined by two guests who are firmly against the idea of themed retrospectives. We explore why, the misconceptions about themed retros, and the need to focus on value. To make both me and my main coon cat Celeste, aka Princess Fluffybutt, very happy, we'd appreciate a subscribe or follow. Your support helps us to keep creating these episodes. Enjoy the show. Welcome, one and all, to the Virtual Agile podcast with Chris Stone, the Continuous Improvement Coach. Tonight, I have the pleasure of being joined by two guests. The origin of this conversation was a bit of back and forth on LinkedIn about themed retros, which is another of those topics which, a bit like Agile is Dead, seems to be going around a lot at the moment. My guests tonight had shared their own thoughts on the Agile for Humans podcast hosted by Ryan recently, a great conversation. I encourage you to check it out. And while listening to that myself, I caught what I felt was a few common misconceptions about themed retros. And I thought I'd love to invite the two to join me to have a bit of a chat and to share the perspectives that I've seen. So gents, I appreciate your, your willingness to be involved tonight. Welcome to the show, Chris Williams and Ryan Ripley. It's good to meet you finally, Chris. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for the invite. This should be fun. Pleasure. Now, for any of our listeners, gents, who are unfamiliar with your work, please feel free to introduce yourselves. Why don't we start with uh, fellow Chris? Sure. My name is Chris Williams, host of the Badass Agile podcast. I've been around Agile since probably, oh, I don't know. It's probably been about 10, 15 years now, somewhere in there, depending on how you classify it. But I've been in tech since 1994, where I started my career as a Microsoft certified trainer. So I have the podcast. I am a consultant and coach, and I have a year-long immersion experience called The Forge, which is driven to create new levels of leadership in people, whether you're inside Agile or out. Thank you very much. And how about Ryan? Tough to follow Mr. Williams, but I will try. So my name is Ryan Ripley. I'm a professional Scrum trainer with Scrum.org co-founded the, the company Agile for Humans and the whole platform with Todd Miller, co-wrote a couple books with Todd, Fixing Your Scrum, and more recently, Unlocking Business Agility with Evidence-Based Management, speaker, trainer, keynoter, Twitter, provocateur, LinkedIn, clown, all sorts of fun stuff. Been around for a while, I'm trying to think if there's anything else out there. YouTuber is more recent, so I'm learning how to say like and subscribe and all that fun, all the stuff that the kids are saying. But yeah, and a longtime practitioner, started as a developer, worked into management and project management, became an executive, and then a scrum master, and then a trainer. And so, been all over the board, but uh, also a podcaster. So Chris, appreciate this, and uh, appreciate you bringing us on your platform, and uh, hope we all have a great conversation. I'm sure we will, and there's a lot of collective experience between the two of you. I wanted to start with something that I think is really important. Some of these topics uh, on social media, on LinkedIn, they, they seem to amass a fair amount of vitriol back and forth. You know, it seems to be that people, when they disagree, their response is to break down someone's arguments without focusing on, on, on data, without focusing on some of the things they should be focused on, without focusing on being empirical. And without doing so respectfully, it seems to be that there's a lot of, I need to break down you to build up my thing because my thing's better. And I don't like that. I firmly believe that we can disagree with each other openly, and we should do. I welcome it. I encourage it. It's our differences of opinion that bring out diverse thinking. It creates innovation. And as for me, it's, it's the respectful side of things that's the, that's the key. 
So I'd love for us to embody that today in this conversation. I'm sure we're going to be able to do that. And I'd love for people to, to bear that in mind when they do disagree with others in the, in the future. You can disagree with someone. It doesn't mean that the person's at fault. It doesn't mean that you can't like them. It just means you have different perspectives. You have different experiences. And that's okay. Yeah. Anything you'd like to add to that? You sure, real quick, I'll say that to me, social media is largely a failed experiment because it's not real democratic thought. And so at this point, it does more to polarize people than it does to provide solutions. We have what we call a community, in open air quotes, that does more to tear each other down than to build each other up, which is too bad because we have a good thing going here. And I mean, I've studied your work too, Chris, in addition to Ryan's, and there's good stuff everywhere. And so... I am never dismissive of another person's work. And so if anyone senses that this comes from a place of me telling you, you ought not to, or you must, or you, it doesn't matter. You, you know, you, there's a saying on the internet right now, mess about and find out whatever works for you works for you. So we're not here to tear apart someone's ideas, much less their character. So I, I appreciate and respect respectful debate. Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I I will add to it a bit that there are there is such a thing as just a bad idea, and I think bad ideas should be discussed and rooted out and uh, hopefully exposed and and or at least bad thinking, bad logic. And I think as long as we're doing that, we are doing our jobs. The second that we start attacking people, though, is where a line is crossed. And I think all of us have stayed well away from that line, which I've I've always appreciated. So as long as we're we're talking about ideas or logic or lines of thought, I think we're in a safe spot, and I think we'll continue to do that. Awesome. So let's uh, dive into something where I think we all agree on, and that's a focus on value. Hmm. I personally believe there's been a bit of a disservice done in the Agile space when it comes to value focus. When someone is taught about Agile, Often the beginning is some sort of methodology, some sort of framework, some sort of rote way of doing something. Apply this mechanically and not on how by doing these things, by, by embodying these principles, this is the value you bring. And this is how to show the value you're bringing back to the companies that are trying these things. And the consequence of that, I believe, is this erosion of the value we're seeing in the roles of Agile Coach, Scrum Master and otherwise. Love to hear your take on that, gents. Yeah, I, I don't think it's right to blame the frameworks. You know, of course, I'm a, a trainer with Scrum.org, so of course, that's going to be my position, right? But uh, when we're teaching Scrum to organizations, a lot of the time, Todd and I will discourage it and say, "No, fix your architecture first. Get your get your culture in line. Get your leaders really aligned." Like we'll actually flat out say, "Look, if you're going down this path." You're creating self-managed teams. Your software architecture is going to get exposed. And in, by the way, it's not set for agile software delivery. So that's going to be a problem. And we worked on this line where there's so many other things in, that are more important in the value delivery chain that we actually encourage those to be corrected first. But once they're ready or once they are, they're insistent, you know, one or the other, Scrum is installed and we work through it. But that's not even a rote framework or it's not a methodology it's 13 pages of good ideas that that have to be implemented in context and so there's really no two scrum implementations that look exactly the same and throughout the entire process of training and and transformation the the emphasis on us is delivery you know ken schwaber once famously said the point of scrum is done and i was taught by ken and that always stuck with me that 
We're not here to do Scrum perfectly, and we don't want the, the, the most fun retrospective ever and the most effective sprint review. We're not after perfect events. We're not after perfect artifacts. Uh, we're not after perfect people. We're after a done increment that equals value. And so as long as your, your, your framing is that way, Scrum, Kanban, DSDM, Crystal, all of the old, you know, I was around when the old framework wars were happening, and whichever one you picked, even Waterfall, as long as delivery is the focus, great things happen. So I'm not sure it's rote frameworks. I'm not sure it's, it's all of that stuff. I think it's just when people forget that there were, that we are here to ship first and foremost, a lot of the bad things that you mentioned, Chris, can tend to happen. Or even, or even cust, I should say customer-centric delivery. I've, I want to make sure I'm super clear on that. Like customer determines value. So it's, it's not okay just to throw something out there. We got to make sure we're doing the right thing at the right time for the right person, all of those caveats. But, but yeah, it's, it's delivery and value focus. I would tend to agree. So my, in my work, I don't do scrum teams just for the sake of doing scrum teams. I don't do big bank scrum. I don't right. do even technical scrum that much anymore. I focus on using scrum, however applied to, I don't mean badly applied, but without being too dogmatic because dogmatism usually doesn't serve. The idea is that people will come to me with a pain. They'll come to me with a problem. Sales aren't right. Attrition is too high. We can't keep customers. Customers aren't loyal. They don't stay with us. Every company that you meet that's looking to spend money with a consultant or a trainer is looking to solve a problem. That's So the people who pay you will tell you what value they're after. And it's almost never we want to be scrummy. They basically, if you, most CEOs that you approach, you ask them, how's your scrum doing? They won't know what you're talking about. It's not really their focus. They're focused on things like earnings per share, shareholder value, and so on. And as soon as you can get those people to say, but where does earnings per share come from? It comes from delivering valuable things to a marketplace that wants them and will pay for them. As soon as you locked into that, that's where I want to help. So I will tie my fees to a change in churn or a change in revenue or sales or margin or whatever you want me to tie it to. Because if I help you do something well, I want a piece. That's it. I don't want to be paid some big number per hour to sit there and do scrum to make teams happy or for some other reasons. I'm there to help you get what you want. That's what I specialize in. So I almost always start with teams that are signed up for delivering that value. I won't just take on a team that's there. I will help you build a team and show you how to invest in innovation or invest in delivery so that you can bring that value to the customer and ultimately back to the organization, whether that organization is 13 people or 200,000, it doesn't matter. Does that, did that answer your question, Chris? It leads back to what I'm often saying, which is leaders, companies, they don't buy agile itself, right? They want the outcomes. Correct. They yes. want, as you said, they want an improvement in their EBITDA, their earnings per share. They want those sorts of things. That's what they're measured against. So no leader comes along and says, oh, can you make sure I get more story points, please? They care about, all right, are customers getting value from our products? Is that returning a better return investment or, or higher shares? And then from there, okay, that's your outcome. How are your current ways of working? And I don't even mention Agile. How are your current ways of working helping or hindering from getting there? Yeah. And then thirdly, how are you continuously improving those ways of working? Mm. And that comes back, to, you know, it comes back to the value. It comes back to not taking a one-size-fits-all. I'm trying to put in Scrum or any framework for you. I'm trying to help you find what works for you in your context, your people, your culture, your situation, 
And then it's all about experimentation and building in the feedback loops that enable you to learn and adjust accordingly. I think where I was coming back to from the the failing in the agile industry, if you want to call it industry standpoint, is that a, a new scrum master, they aren't taught this stuff. They aren't taught, right? If you help a company do X, this is how you measure the value. This is how you demonstrate the value you've brought back to the person paying for your services. And I believe that can result in this perspective from the people that make those hiring and firing decisions of that person's easy to get rid of. Well, Chris, I'm, I'm teaching a, a professional scrum master course tomorrow. And all the things that we've just spent the last five minutes or so agreeing on are first and foremost in the course. We'll talk about it on day one. We'll talk about it on day two. I, I grew up in the Fortune 500. So I've, I've competed for my, when I was working in companies for the better part of 20 years, every year. So when I was working in, in those companies, there was an old practice that, that was really horrible, but it was rampant throughout corporate America. Bottom 10% every year got cut. And Chris is nodding his head. He's seen that as well. And maybe that's true over in, in the UK as well. But it used to be that you would get forced ranked and the bottom 10 got cut. And so you were always proving, proving, you know, that you were adding to value delivery. And, and so I've always, almost always played scared. Like I must be involved in value delivery. I must show the value I'm bringing. I must, and that's always, and for better or for worse, that is really tinted the, the glasses I wear as I look through, as I navigate the agile space. And, and so delivery and value and demonstrating value, which is why Todd and I dedicated yet another year to writing a book, which I don't recommend to anyone out there writing a book. I do recommend our book, but I think evidence-based management is this new frontier of things that now let's actually prove that what we're delivering is valuable and that our capabilities internally are up to snuff so that we can actually deliver valuable things. And let's actually bring evidence to the discussion. And I think that framework is the next innovation. It's amazing that I think Ken Schwaber has managed to have lightning strike twice. You know, Scrum literally changed the world. And I think Ken was the, the larger component of that discovery and innovation. And now to have EBM out there proving or disproving the efficacy, the value, the the effectiveness of teams, it's simply amazing. These are the areas that I'm interested in, right? It's one thing to say, let's teach people how to deliver value. It's another thing to say, prove it. And I think that's where, that's where my mind is focused right now. And so I think it's just such a wonderful topic to start on. Let's dive into that in just a moment then. I just wanted to come back to your point about the, the bottom 10% in, in the US being cut and that, that resulting in kind of a, a drive to show your value continuously. I wouldn't yep. say that's uh, common across all of the UK, but certainly in my background, I came from a consultancy background. I don't have 20 years of experience, around about 12. And consultancies like Accenture, they have this forced distribution where the bottom 10% yep. are managed out of the business and the top ones, uh, maybe they get a bit of a, a bonus and maybe a promotion. So I've experienced that myself. It, it resulted in this relentless pursuit of improvements in my own work. And I've always aspired to do so creatively, which comes back to the, the theme retros. But let's dive into this, sure. this evidence-based management things, because that, to me, is, is, a, is a great topic. Any retro I create these days is purposeful about being evidential or you being evidence-based about how we approach the action side of things. I don't tend to call them actions. I call them experiments. And in fact, I, I help teams by structuring the things they're going to do next based on what they learned in that retro as little experiments. We believe X will happen if we do X, and here's when we're going to review it and, and see if it's been successful or not. And I think having more teams approach these 
you know, the, the way they deliver their work scientifically, hypothesizing what they think will happen and then proving it through evidence um, and really embracing the empiricism is a great way forward. Agreed. <laughs> Wrote a whole book on it, along with Todd Miller, Patricia Kong and Kurt Bittner. I, I wholeheartedly agree. All right. So I'm, I'm keen to discuss a little bit about this, these themed retros then. I know you two aren't a fan. Let's start with the, the Tinder retro. I recall the words unprofessional and inappropriate being used. Tell me more. I'd love to hear about it. I, I think in the U.S., if you are, if any of the, bo- and I worked for, I, I'm lucky. I had great mentors, great bosses, always had people around me that were interested in leveling me up. If I had, if one of the many great VPs that I reported to walked in on me conducting a retrospective based off of Tinder, I would at very minimum find myself in a conversation after five o'clock with them and very likely have an HR person approaching me at least about how I should never, ever do that again. I I just think there are certain boundaries and maybe it's a a puritanical slant in the United States that leads me to feel this way or whatever it is like that, that topic, that whole dating and swiping and judging people off of looks and hookup culture. And you bring all of that baggage into a discussion. And I just think it's, it's not for the workplace. It's funny. And I think it gets a lot of LinkedIn clicks and I think it gets a lot of banter and discussion. And I think bravo. Like I think in today's world, we have to stand out as trainers and coaches and we have to build platforms and we have to prove value and we have to do those things to, to survive in this marketplace. But I do think that particular one is risky. I think actually many women, especially my, I actually ran it by my wife. How would you feel about sitting in a conversation and a male scrum master wanted to do a tinder retro and she said she'd walk out she's not doing that she's not there for that nonsense and she's a very she's a fun she's more fun than i am i married a fun person right i've actually i've spoken i've I've gotten tons of messages about kind of calling that one out from people from all walks of life and i just think that one is overly provocative and perhaps somewhat risky you should see some of the ones that i don't share openly on linkedin (laughs) oh i'm I'm sure it's easy to to have some fun with those. I was just going to say, in 2024, the soup that we swim in is that if you go into a room and say, hey, guys, we're going to do a theme retro this week. Who's heard of Tinder? You're all it's 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 rolling dice that one of these days someone doesn't go. Yeah, I know what Tinder is. I met my stalker on Tinder. And I'm going to need a month yep. off of work. So I'm going to head on down to HR. The minute that happens, it, it's going to throw your legitimacy into doubt. Number one, it's going to create all kinds of potentially going to create all kinds of trouble. I have no evidence for this one. I've never seen a Tinder retro go badly. I'm just extrapolating a little bit. The, the culture that we live in, words matter. And so for the time being, we have to be very careful about how we present information and who it might ignite. Because for better or worse, everyone's different. We can't assume that everyone's just going to be okay with something because I think it's funny. So we often have to err on the side of caution. Again, that's a 2024 thing. It wasn't always that way. But I think that one might be, even if I loved theme retros, I might not pick that one. I I agree with you, Chris. That would not be my (laughs) go-to. I I would have gone with the Harry Potter, but uh, that's me. All right. So there are different perspectives there being shared from a from a cultural side of things, from different parts of the world may receive that differently. As you've highlighted, we're all different. And you you don't know what's going on for someone and and how they could interpret that. Now, one thing I want to address here, and it's a common misconception about themed retros. For me, they're always an invitation. They're not something that a scrum master comes in and says, right, you're you're doing this retro today. 
it's uh, hey hey folks want to try something different here here's an option and maybe here's five of them that we could try or maybe why don't you select yeah. one of these ones and we'll go with that and then once we've chosen one you choose the priority which of those prompts most resonate for you based on the situation we're facing right now so it's less of a a scrum master coming in and forcing a, a method on someone and more of a here is a tool that we can use that might bring about different thinking now the the Tinder retro, from my perspective, is backed by psychology. It, you know, the principles of swiping are popular, were popularized by Tinder, but are backed by human psychology. We read left to right. The, the clocks go left to right clockwise. Infants demonstrate swiping behavior when they're in, interested in something from a very young age. So the action of swiping is very natural. And because it's been popularized by Tinder, it's now a very much a key part of many applications these days in modern UX design. And for that reason, and given that 45% of people these days meet their partners via online dating and dating apps, to me, it seemed like a great way to bring in something that we're all familiar with into a simple concept. And the left and right just simply means, hey, which of our ways of working doesn't work for us? Would we left swipe on? Which of sure. our ways of working would we right swipe on? Because they are working for us. What, we, what should we double down on? And those questions, they're still looking to get the same outcome as any traditional retro woods which is how can we try something different that would make us better prepared to deliver value, to deliver the outcome, to achieve the goal, to get stuff done. It's not about trying to mimic the, the shallow swiping of people, but you're taking something that's a bit lighthearted and putting it back onto ways of working, which can be these emotive topics. Chris, I don't think you did anything malicious. And if I've ever come across in any of my criticism of the Tinder retro trying to put anything negative on you that that's certainly not my intent. And I unreservedly apologize. I just, I, I just think you're t at least in American culture, you're taking a huge risk and, uh, and it could be different elsewhere. Uh, I just think in our corporate world here, it's an unforced error that could just lead to an outcome you're not after, you know, but I, but I also think it's interesting that you mentioned that the themed retro is layered on top of a traditional retro. And I, and to me, that's plus minus Delta. It's the three column retro. It's the, the standard, well, what went well and what didn't and what do we need to change? And I just find that that has run its course. It's kind of like burn up charts or story points or it just belongs in the bin of, of bad, agile ideas. I think Esther Derby and Diana Larson and now Horowitz as well. I think David has joined for the second edition of the Retrospectives book, which I just did an interview with them that'll be out soon. It's They've moved past that. And they, you know, I still think, you know... Here, here's my big problem, right? Derby and Larson and now Horowitz have set out five steps. Set the stage, gather data, generate insights, decide what to do, and close the retro. That is a, re that is a retrospective, and that is a, a wonderful way to do it. And I think what, it, well, at least what Todd and I teach other scrum masters in our, in our courses, in our mentoring, is that canned out-of-the-box retros, whether they're themed or just standard formats, are painting by number. And yeah, they can get by in a pinch and they can help you out and they can fill in when, when things are tight. But a, a scrum master who has mastered their craft can walk into a room and gather the data about what's gone, what's gone on during the sprint. And hopefully they've been present enough to actually be able to do that, right? So they can gather that. They can first set the stage. Here is the goal of this retro. Here is the goal of what we're trying to do. They can gather the data. They can help generate insights. They can help ask good questions to decide what to do. They can do that on the fly, in the moment, based off of what the team needs and what they express. And, the, and they can work that in an engaging, 
charismatic way that doesn't require the gimmick baked in to be engaging and relevant and to keep people's attention. And I'll give you an example. A company once flew me in just to, they had built a new agile space and they were a, a former client who took a lot of our classes, flew in over the weekend, came in on a Monday. They had a retrospectives room. It was brilliant. All this great stuff on the walls. It was really fun and murals and graffiti and all sorts of neat stuff. And in the corner, there was this flip chart. And this flip chart had crusty posts. You know, the, the post-its that's been there too long, they start curling up a bit and they start flaking off. And, and so instead of looking at all the cool murals and the, the futuristic space, I guess I'm not fun because I wasn't really amused by it. I just thought, all right, that's cool. It'd be neat to walk in there and, and kind of reflect. But I wasn't too taken aback by it. I instead focused on this, this flip chart. And I said, what is that? And I said, well, that's our, and I could see the plus, the minus, and the delta at the top of the three columns. And, well, that's our retro board. And I'm like, why does it look like it's been here since 19 dickety do? Like, what is going on here? And they're like, well, we used to run retros, but, uh, you know, we come up with the same thing every time. It's like, well, we tried, to, uh, we, we tried to do a Star Wars one. We tried to do a Harry Potter one. We tried to do, like, they were doing these different themes around plus, minus, delta. And they kept getting the same answers. So they abandoned the retro and they just work on the same board for months and months. And this is a, a scrum master who had been around a while. It was really surprising. I was like, hey, you know what? You spent a lot of money. Can I just run your next retro, which happened to be that day? And they said, that would be great. Do you want to use my board? And I was like, nah, I think we're going to leave the board over there. And I took one of their fun mural walls. And after asking, setting that stage of the goal here is delivery. And I want to talk about delivery. And I gathered their data about delivery. When's the last, how, how do check-ins look? When's the last time you shipped? And we asked a bunch of questions there. And then started generating some general insights that, oh no, delivery is really difficult. Now why is delivery? And, and told some jokes along the way. Was able to speak in a way that was engaging. I mean, everybody was like going, holy cow, what's going on here? Not only that, they filled this massive mural wall with post-its about what was going on. And what was interesting was we could group them and we could generate those insights and we could take a look at what was actually happening. And we made some solid decisions about what needed to, to happen next. And none of those things were represented on those crusty old post-its. Completely different. But we broke that pattern. We broke that pattern of the same old, hey, we want to be fun. We want to do the, the, one of them was, one of the retros was an Oreo tasting different types of Oreos for the different things that could be going on in the, and I'm just like, well, what are you guys doing? And by the end of that retro, some, some pretty good insights came in. Leadership came in the room and said, we didn't even know this was a problem. Like three or four of those things they could go off and take care of. And the goal was that we said at the beginning, make delivery just a little bit simpler, you know, such a simple goal. And by the end, I think five or six different initiatives took off over the course of a few months they were able to fix things. I was able to visit a few more times and, and actually spent a lot of time with that scrum master on how exactly I crafted that retro. And all it was, was asking good questions, getting out of their way to do some idea generation, asking some better questions, getting out of their way. But it wasn't a preset map. It wasn't a, here's three questions to find out whether or not we're enough of a Gryffindor. It's no, we need, and I, that's not enough. You have to be able to understand what you're looking at, who you're talking to, reading the room, seeing where the conversation is going, pivoting on a question when it doesn't work. There is a true skill here that a gimmick doesn't replace. And I think that's where a lot of my pushback comes. It's not that the, re the theme retros are great. They get clicks. They get attention. People love them. They can use them. You're doing all the right things, Chris. 
But what we're not doing, and me included, right? I haven't spent enough time here on YouTube or on Twitter or LinkedIn actually teaching the skills to, to dig deeper. And, and I think that's where, where we need to go. It's like you're trying to eat your pudding before you have your bangers and mash, right? And you can't have the pudding first, Chris. You gotta, we got to learn the deep skills, and then we can play with the, with the themes. And I, and I think we've reversed it for some reason. And that's where kind of I get, I get hung up. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack with, with what you've said there. And I think I'll, I'll, I'll come back to a, a couple of things that you, you alluded to. I think another misconception is that a themed retro doesn't follow the logic of the five stages. So let's let's give a, a real life example. Right, I, I know you like American football. So let's dive into the American football retrospective because I created one of those two. All right. In the American football retrospective, you've got five prompts available to you. Uh, and let's do one of them. Timeout, right? Timeout. We're calling a timeout. And that question is about where do we need to pause and rethink our approach on what we're doing? Or how could we pivot what we're doing in the next iteration to give ourselves a better chance of succeeding? Right? But just like a timeout would do in American football. You stop, you pause, you go, right, I've just seen this on their defense. I'm going to do this as a consequence. So you've already, let's assume you've already set the stage. We're here to achieve this. We know this is our biggest problem right now. Timeout. What do we need to look at? You then start to generate insights, gather data, gather data, generate insights, ask why this is happening. Then you capture an action. Then once you've captured a good action and made sure it's a good quality action, I'm not talking about more, more conversations with stakeholders or introduce work in progress limits. I'm talking something specific that's like an experiment that you know when you're going to do it and you know who's going to do it. Then you might move on to the next prompt. And that might be, okay, um, draft day. Where do we need to bring in some new skills to our team because we're missing something, something that's holding us back, be it technology, people or otherwise. And you look at it from another lens. And now you've got a new perspective, something that's unlocking different thinking. And it's not the, the rote start, stop, continue style. It's different questions, links to themes and metaphor that people enjoy. We follow these sports. We love them. We spend billions of dollars every year following sports, movies, television, and otherwise. And it gets people talking, but still following that same structure of five stages, capturing actions, moving on. And to be honest, if we capture a couple of actions, I'm happy to close out the retro. It doesn't need to be a full one hour and a half retro. If you capture a couple of good actions, that's a better outcome than capturing 10 that you're never going to do. Does that make sense? I, I just think it, it's great if it stays on the roller coaster track. And I, and I think that works fine. But I think what happens is when the wrench gets thrown into the mix and someone says, well, we've drafted poorly for the past five seasons, like you're the Chicago Bears. You didn't pick Mahomes, you picked Trubisky, right? Terrible yep. mistake. And they, and they throw that curveball back at you, then suddenly you don't have this script to follow, you don't have the theme retro to follow, and you have to be able to know what to do there. And I think when people are following these, these and, and again, they're not bad. I, I, I've used these in the past after I mastered the skill, right? And that's where, that's where I'm at with it. If you have someone who, like if Esther Derby wants to go do a retrospective and if she decides that a theme is appropriate, have at it. I love it. And I would love to see that. I'd love to see how she weaves that into her, her masterful execution of a retrospective. But I think unless you've, you've gotten to that space, what these things do, and it, I'm not necessarily against them. My concern is, so now we're going to trust them with a, a scripted retrospective, a themed retrospective, and believe that these unskilled or perhaps new, unskilled is unfair, let's just say new. They're brand new to this. We were all new once. There's nothing, no harm in that. But we're, what we're telling them is, follow this and you'll be fine, instead of, 
you know, master the craft, learn the skills, actually learn how to craft a discussion on your own. See, like learn the rules before you break them kind of thing. And also know what to do when the wrenches get thrown into the mix. I just think we're asking for some danger. But I also think, too, if you have the NFL retro, there's to Chris's previous point, to, to Mr. Williams's point here, I don't like football. Or why is it always about sports? And, and then suddenly you've, you've stepped on something else that, that, that sometimes professionals will, will just be upset. I can tell you this. If I started a retro with anything other than trying to generate deep insights about value, most executives that I worked with or worked for would walk out of the room. Or if I start, pulled out Legos or if I pulled out you know, some of this other stuff that, that coaches like, they would just walk out. And there are developers that I've worked with who are insanely talented who would just walk out and say, dude, you're wasting my time. You want me to give my, my two cents on why I wouldn't use it? I, I would never try to tell somebody how to coach unless they asked me for help with coaching. If you want to explore and find sure. and mess about and find out, go do it. Experimentation should be at the heart of what we do. As long as you're doing it with a heart to saying empirically, speaking of Ryan's latest book, the reason why I wouldn't use these is because the risk doesn't outweigh the benefits. So I'm going to offer some feedback to you, Chris, on your style. Are you willing to hear it? The most valuable thing that Chris Stone does is buried inside those templates. So when I look at them closely, there are powerful questions contained therein that are highly valuable. And other coaches should and can learn from those questions. One example was, what are we fearing to discuss? Or what are we afraid of discussing or doing? You can learn a lot by asking that question, particularly with a team that's comfortable in answering it. I have a philosophy, yeah. and I teach this in The Forge, that if you don't give a plant enough water, it dies. But if you give a plant too much water, it dies. Which means neither end of the pendulum swing is good. Balance is essential for just about everything. High performers, the natural world around us is all based around balance. There is such a thing as doing too much and trying too hard that bears no additional fruit. 80% of the value of that themed retrospective I was looking at with that question in it was in that 20% question. So the next question is, let's talk about the risk. The Tinder one, like I said, I have no evidence that that Tinder retro is going to blow up, but I do have evidence that making your retrospectives or any activity too childish causes some people to say, I feel like we were being treated like children and they will never tell the scrum master, but they will tell the bosses, especially if you're an external consultant. So there is a risk that someone may be offended and say, this insults my intelligence. Like a lot of people in scrum teams like me. So please don't get offended, but we rose up, through the nerdery. We all started as developers, then probably architects, maybe PMs. A lot of us, you know, wear glasses. We lost our hair too early. We're tech people. Yeah. And so we tend to pride ourselves on our intellect and our intelligence. That's how we add value. That's how we contribute. That's why we work in the industries we work in. And sometimes you will show something like this to a group and they'll get upset. They'll get offended. I feel like I'm being treated like a child. You don't have to agree with that, but can you see why that might be an automatic response? And when they get upset and offended, what are they going to do? They're probably going to close down. I agree with what Ryan says. These are great tools for people who, you know, again, 
when I, I have the privilege and I've set my coaching practice up so that I'm working with willing minds and projects that fit. So if there's Larry in a corner, doesn't like to talk and is very, keeps things very close to his chest, doesn't like to share because he's afraid of blowback or just, he's not a very social guy, wants to write his code. Why does it matter if they don't want to contribute yet? So you meet them the first time and they're not showing up for a retro. They're a little bit in the corner. Why not spend some time letting them not contribute, letting them be comfortable with who they are until you can find a way to increase that contribution, increasing that contribution by building trust and creating shared value and working on things together. Because when I work with elite teams, and I have a friend who is the sports psychologist coach for the Washington Nationals. It's an American baseball team. They would never think of bringing something like that to try to encourage participation. Everyone there is ready to contribute. Everyone there is ready to make the team better. If I don't contribute, I'm hurting my team. I'm not helping them. The same thing when you look at, you know, Army Rangers or Green Berets, contribution is so key to what they do that it's customary to say, Brian, you let your team down today. You showed up half-assed. Looks like you were drunk last night. What's going on with you, dude? You can't do that. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's different comfort levels at different, I won't say demographic, but at different profiles. And so if people who are at the top levels of their game, CEOs who are paid 300 times what you are to do what they do, usually don't, like I can't think of an example of a CEO who's like, let's bring in some themed retrospectives. They understand the importance of feedback. They know how to move people and motivate people to drive good feedback. Then they know how to act on it and create accountability. So if that profile of individual wouldn't use a themed retrospective just because it's, it's not necessary, I'd rather just ask the question, what are we afraid of doing? That's a great question. Then what is the profile of someone who favors a themed retrospective? Could it be that it's the new practitioner who's like, I don't know how to get Larry to talk. What do I do here? If so, and it serves a purpose of training and helping and building and growing, great. But they're training wheels that at some point maybe have to come off because again, that risk of offending or that risk of making it too childish. You know, we talk about play all the time. Create, what do they call it? They call it not creative play. Serious play serious play when we talk about play from that perspective and anyone who defends themed retrospective by saying it's backed by science there are no scientific studies on like a smurf retrospective whether it makes outcomes better there aren't any so let's not pretend there are but there's a ton of science around play at work but usually if you read those studies you'll notice that play means fearlessness it means lateral thinking It means bringing your passion into your work. It means novelty. And to me, novelty is not synonymous with a cool, interesting, highly colorful retrospective poster. I don't think those things are the same. So again, I would never tell someone how to coach a team. If you love these things and you believe that they work for you, do what feels right. Just remember, there's a higher risk-reward trade-off than not using them. I find that when you tell people, I don't like these themed retrospectives so much, they get really defensive and they start, as you said at the beginning, Chris, last time we talked about this, Ryan, you and I went on the air, some guy wrote me an essay 
probably at work, yeah. probably using billable hours. I mean, that tends to be the way that it is about all the reasons why he was so very right and I was so very wrong. And at the end, he took the manifesto and says, you know, maybe you've heard of this. And he circled all the, you know, all the words in it that he thought I didn't understand. And I thought, I get why you don't sense how some things you say or do can be a little condescending. I've read the manifesto. I've thought this through. The stuff that I'm offering you is based on, like you, Chris, based on a ton of feedback in the field and what works. But I think the people that I serve might be different in the sense that we're no longer trying to solve the problem of, well, I can't get Larry to talk in a retrospective. The accountability, it feels like when you get to a higher level of accountability and responsibility to the team and service to the team, the need for these things falls off and the 80-20 rule applies. Most of the value comes from the really intelligent probing questions that will help the team get better. Well, and I just wanted to amplify Chris's compliment there for uh, Mr. Stone. The questions are brilliant. I, I, I totally agree. I, I don't think we spend enough time saying nice things about other people's work. It's uh, Social media, to your earlier point, Chris, can can tarnish that the questions are great and i and i totally agree with that so i thought that was a really nice thing and i wanted to amplify that before we got too far away from it well thank you to you both and chris you asked if i wanted feedback thank you for sharing the feedback i'm always happy to hear it i'd really like to emphasize that i have never once said that retrospectives and theme retrospectives are the only way of doing things they are always to me a tool that you can use if it fits the given situation they're best used when it's chosen by the team. It's best used when you need to mix things up a little bit and, and bring a bit of novelty. I think where we may fundamentally disagree slightly, and again, I welcome disagreement, is that for me, I don't think there needs to be a separation, like a binary, it's either fun or value focused. They can be both. You can have something that's a bit thematic that still focuses on asking those really powerful questions that creates some good conversations that results in action and focus on action. It doesn't have to be a binary this or that approach. I also believe there are certain demographics or profiles, as you say, which may gravitate towards them more than others. And I'm not saying they are a one size fits all approach. Would a CEO come up to me and say, hey, can you, can you do some theme retros, please? No, but I get plenty of heads of agile practice, plenty of senior people coming in and asking me to come and teach their companies how to get the benefits from themed retros. Would a CEO really care about a theme retro? No, but they care about the outcome that they can bring about. So by me teaching people how to do retros in different ways, that brings about good conversations, that unlocks those insights, that gets people talking, that builds trust and respect, creates novelty and that radical transparency to say, hey, you, you've, not, you've not held your bargain there. You've not delivered what you committed upon. They can be a path towards that. And that's what I've experienced. And that's some of the feedback that I get from the people that share with me from using them. Sure. I'm going to contribute one thing here, and it's probably going to be controversial, and I hope it doesn't offend anybody. There is a side of agile. This profession of ours, this wonderful profession is becoming more saturated, and it's hard, impossible to control who gets in and who stays in. So really, anyone willing to maybe take a certification test, get a couple of certs, spend a couple of years honing their craft, will eventually get a job. It's not necessarily, not like being a doctor where you, you basically, if you can't make it through the 8 to 12 years of education, you can't practice medicine. Scrum master, there's no such delineation. So we have some bad actors, as we say, in the practice. And there are some people who like these things. Not saying it's everybody. There's a small number that I've met who like these things because it avoids the difficult conversations, the difficult work, as Ryan said, 
of how do you, like if I came into your room and said, no more, you're not allowed to use themed retros, there are some people who wouldn't quite know what to do if Larry doesn't want to talk, if we're not getting creative and useful outputs from the session. There's some people would feel completely abandoned, like they had no armor. And so there's a tiny bit of risk there as well. Are we using these things as training wheels for too long? And as an agile community, do we fail to challenge each other to do retrospectives better so that we can get to the right answers and the right actions quicker? I'll leave that open for anyone to comment on. Well, I, I think what I heard is, you know, let the team decide from, from Chris earlier. And I, and I wanted to push back on that real quick as a scrum master. So if I'm, a co- of course, my lens is primarily scrum, right? That's what I, what I work in. It's what I teach and train. My job as a scrum master is to improve or increase the effectiveness of the scrum team. I don't know if I can leave the retro up to happenstance or the whims of a team anymore. You know, I know in the agile community, a lot of people will take the Lisa Adkins coaching agile teams mantra from her great book. Lisa's brilliant, but everyone will say, well, just take it to the team. Take it to, well, not everything goes to the team, right? And not everything should. And so I think this is a case where scrum master discretion might really be important. And this, I don't want the scrum master role to turn into a popularity contest hey, they really entertained us, and so we like them, and so we're not going to cause problems. And maybe that's a thing, maybe it isn't. But I really want Scrum Masters to think about what they're doing and why they're doing it and improving at, improving at those things and actually proving that the things that they're doing are increasing and contributing to effectiveness. Now, if you have a Scrum Master out there that can say, look, I'm running that Harry Potter retro. The questions are good. People are engaged and the team is improving sprint over sprint. The stakeholders are delighted. Leadership is all in on funding this team because they're just a high performing, amazing team. Don't listen to anything I've said and just keep doing what you're doing. You are winning. Delivery is the goal, right? Value is the goal. But if you're finding that effectiveness is not increasing, but everyone's well entertained, Maybe a shift needs to happen. And maybe I think that's part to, to Chris's point about, you know, not being able to say this isn't working or this isn't good or this isn't getting the outcome we wanted. I've been wrong 10 times today. I'll be wrong 10 times tomorrow. I was wrong 3,000 times in 2023. I'm going to be wrong 3,000 more times this year. I love it. Give me the feedback. Give me the evidence. I'm going to pivot as soon as I know I'm off, I'm off track. I think we're all agreed it comes back to effectiveness. I, I consider it my mantra to help people to continuously improve everywhere, involving everyone all the time, right? so every day. And to me, that comes back to effectiveness. It doesn't come back to fun for fun's sake. It doesn't come back to forcing fun. They are just, as I said, tools in your arsenal that you can use given the situation. Like you were saying as well, I, I'm not the sort of person who likes to coach in the, well, always after team mindset, because sometimes the team doesn't know what they don't know. And sometimes you do need to adopt a different stance and show them, hey, this is what you should try. We'll start with this. We'll learn from it. And you'll be part of that discovery process. And we'll learn and we'll adjust from there. You'll be co-creating how we work based on what we discover together. I don't think that at that always response of it depends and after team helps a lot of the time. I think it's uh, an easy crutch to fall back on but we need to be able to adjust to the context. Love it. Well, and if Scrum Masters want to remain in organizations, those answers have to go away. 
We're also there. You know, everyone says Bob Galen has sparked a, a beautiful discussion about professional coaching and agile coaching and professional coaching and scrum masters on LinkedIn lately. If you're not reading those, go check them out. Bob's masterfully weaving a really good narrative there. But if you want to stay in organizations, consulting is also a stance you have to you have to stand in. You can't sit back and ask a powerful question or, well, how do you feel about that? Like the, the turning the question on people or, well, it depends, or let's take it to the, all the, the cliched nonsense that is out there. It's like, no, you, you need experience in what you're doing. You need mastery of your skills. You need to be able to say, you know, I've seen this in three other places and this automated testing branch really helped us be a little more, let's, should we, should we explore this? Like you, you've got to have that consulting gear as well. And, uh, and you got to be opinionated. So Chris, I mean, back to, you know, the great questions you, you put out there. You're also super opinionated. I think the three of us all are. I think you actually have to take a stance and actually have a belief in something and it can't just be wishy-washy. And, and so I think that's why, you know, for, for Chris Stone, I think that's why you're so effective online. It's, it's an opinionated stance on fun in the workplace and yet still being effective. And, and we can all respect that. I know, Chris Williams with the Forge, and you know you've taken an opinionated stance. I'm certainly not short of opinions either. You know I share them quite frequently, but I think that's where other scrum masters and agile coaches could learn from us as well. It's the, being opinionated is not a bad thing. Being a consultant is not a bad thing. Having an idea about how something should be done is not a bad thing. It's how you invite people to that process or practice. I've used theme retros, but I've also spent 20 years working on how to craft better retrospectives. I know Chris Williams has used themed retros and has been a part of them, but he's also put in the work. I know Chris Stone, you've done the work, right? You're, you're a, a prominent member of the agile community. Like you've put in the work and, and you've, you've gotten to that place. I just wish there'd be more alerts to people. They're like, Hey, this is an advanced practice. This is, this is some, these are some of the dark arts of agile coaching and, and scrum mastering. Be sure you understand why you're doing this first and and those sorts of things. Yeah, I guess I'd like to just reflect on a point you mentioned earlier. You were talking about the, the importance of experimentation and, and failing. And we're going to make 10 mistakes today and we'll make 10 mistakes tomorrow. Yep. Right? Let's say we, we, get, we empower a, a new Scrum Master to try a retrospective and it fails miserably using one of these formats. Is that not part of the learning experience? Does that not help them learn? Well, okay, well, I, I failed there. It didn't work. Next time I'm going to try. It was those situations where I tried a queen retrospective with a very senior group and I thought this is going to work really well yep. and it landed miserably. And what I did is I pivoted towards, let's just have an open, honest conversation about the most important thing, the one thing holding us back from achieving our top priority right now. And it went from being a retro that was failing miserably to one that was really successful because it had honest conversations, like people were speaking openly. Yep. But you've got to be able to make those mistakes. And I guess my concern it came across the way sometimes people talk about these themed retros is it's like, well, this is a senior profession and we have to kind of tell people to do it the right way first before they do some of these things. That feels a bit gatekeeping-esque. Why not just say, hey, we know it's no, not. it's not. Let them try it, let them fail from it, but also let them continue to learn. Just like people read books and they learn things in there and they try those things and they might not be perfect with those as well. It's just a resource. It's, it's not an attempt to be a gatekeeper. Okay. But it's almost like taking an apprentice carpenter and handing them a high-powered nail gun and saying, fill your boots, right? It's just there's some danger there, and perhaps understanding some of the mechanics before you do that could be useful. 
So it's it's not an attempt to keep people out. I I would hope that people would go look at the body of work that that Todd and I have put out and realize that we have made almost everything free in order to invite everybody in. Right? We are we are trying to bring as many people into this beautiful way of thinking as possible. To your example, Chris, I think you are 100% right. I think a, a newer scrum master or even an old, you know, curmudgeon like me trying out a themed retro and failing is wonderful if then they turn around and grab Esther and Diana and David's second edition of Agile Retrospectives and dig into it and read it and can identify, oh, I violated this principle and that's why it failed. And in the next theme retro, they don't make that mistake. I'm, I love that. To me, that would be a huge win. Keep going, right? I, and, and so to your point, yes, learn from it, make the mistake, but then figure out why that happened. And it's not, be, well, people hate Harry Potter. That's not the answer. It's because the, the insight generated wasn't the right one for the moment. Or I forgot to put, you know, I, I led them, I led the witness too much. Or, you know, really sorting through that. I think that's brilliant. That's beautiful. That's empiricism at its finest. I hope that it helps the people yeah. who are feeling a certain way about certain tactics and techniques. That there's never only one way. There are pluses and minuses yeah. for every solution. And so as coaches, we owe it to each other to help inform and advise the things that we've seen that have worked. We encourage people to go and experiment. We never said, don't use this. And we certainly would never say to Chris Stone, don't make these. That's not the point. The point is to, to be able to illustrate that as you move through your coaching path and see different things, you may find that, like you said, Chris, not one tool fits all. And so be ready, but be skilled. So you have to know how to do a retro without one of these tools. You have to know how to handle the Larry if they're causing pain in the team room. And if that particular tool doesn't work, you're going to have to find another one. You have to find another approach. And that's all part of building your toolkit as you grow as a scrum master and coach. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah. And I hope it doesn't create greater division. Although I suspect, you know, it always might when you, when you give feedback on someone's way of doing things, there's a tendency to field it as criticism, which it's not. Right. We're just, you know, after 10, 15, 20 years doing this job, we are just trying to put content yeah. or ideas out there that might help you, might save you some time, might save you some pain. You know, I've seen people who it's respond to your too. post when you post one of these things. And there are some people who you, you sense have the collect and trade them all mindset that the more of these I have, the better scrum master that will make me. That was never your intention. And you never yep. said that. But there are some people out there who won't use them in the manner in which they're intended. And again, if someone uses one of these things, and let's say worst case, they get in trouble or they get fired or whatever for making someone feel like they were a child, you know, they felt demeaned somehow. And let's say that ended or terminated their contract. Obviously, it doesn't affect me. I'd feel terrible if that happened to somebody. So we're just trying to put info out there that maybe will guide your decisions. But I have me being right doesn't help my customers get the products that they really want. Doesn't help my companies get the results that they really want. So I have no interest in being right. If this works for you, by all means, keep on doing it. And I hope you feel the same way. I've openly admitted that I think if a person uses them in a certain way for inspection and, and growth, they're great. And so I, I, I'm not, again, it's not a right or wrong. I feel that the industry has taken advantage and, and again, this is not about either Chris up here. I think the industry as a whole has said, hey, come to this, this, this cheap certification course, you know, get your cert, hang it on the wall, 
go get a hundred thousand dollar a year job here. We'll teach you how there's a lot of nonsense, how to make a million dollars as a scrum scrum master was a ridiculous video that was out recently. Um, and it's just amping up. And I think now there are people getting sucked into uh, the industry as a whole. And my angle on all of this is no one is stopping and telling them, you know, yeah, you can look, it's true. You can be a realtor or you can be a school teacher or you can be a nurse and you can go get your CSM or your PSM or whatever other certification you go after. That does not make you a scrum master and you still have to do the work. There is a ton of work to do. There's experience. And it does, I'm not a big fan of saying, well, once you hit the 20-year mark, you know what you're doing. I, I think there are talented people on day one. I think there are people like me who it's taken 20 years of mistakes to actually get some good ideas. You know, I, and I think there's everywhere in between. But I do think the messaging that we're failing as a community is to say, by the way, there's a ton of work you have to do over the next year, number of years, as you make this your life's work as you make this your profession. And that's not the message. The message is get a cheap cert, get in a six-figure job and go conquer the world. And those people are now looking for their next job. And I feel horrible for those people because they were lied to. They were misled. They were marketed to. And I don't think any of the three of us are doing that. But I think the community at, at large has moved in that direction. And it's just, so when these things come up, I just start thinking, man, how do we get a message out there that says, by the way, you have to do the work? And, and that's where really I come from on a lot of these topics. I mean, this is that particular topic is why I don't personally train people on the two-day paradigm. Right? right? I teach people over several months so that they can learn something new, go and put it, do the work, put it into practice, see how it goes, yep. fail with it, make mistakes, come back, share how it went. They can iterate again. They can try it. They can learn something new, put that into practice too. And all of those things, you know, you, 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 you train people as well. They help build the, the stickiness, the, the retention, because you're putting something contextual into practice rather than being bombarded with theory and then expected to retain it all. And it helps you actually do the work. Totally agree. It's good. It's, it's not very lucrative for me because it's, a, it's a, more, a more time intensive way of doing it. But to me, it helps have a greater impact on people and the profession. Yeah, and there's also a misconception that all of us two-day guys and two-day gals, as we're called, and we're slandered on LinkedIn, we do immersion training. Todd and I don't talk a lot about the people who have hit hard times that we put through a number of courses over a number of months and whose careers we've, we've built gladly alongside them. Um, and you're right, it's not lucrative. We end up, the pay side is low, but the impact is high. And, and what I love about this particular trio is that I think we all invest in people. I think we all want to see people succeed, and I think we put aside even personal gain and, and financial riches to help people have that, that life and that career to feed their families and to progress, and so I think that's great, too. And that's what I appreciate, appreciate about you guys, which is why I would do a show like this with you. It's, I think we're all, the hearts are in the right place, the ideas might be a little different, the endpoints might be a little skewed, but I think we're all trying to do good things in the world, and, and how could you go wrong if, if that's where your heart's at? It feels like a great way to close the show out, gents, because we are over time. We, we appreciate you both joining me today. Great final message to, to end things on. Thank you very much, both of you, for the, the work you do with the community, for having an open and honest conversation without it being you know, ad hominem attacks. And, and otherwise, as I said at the beginning, we don't need to break others down to, to build up ourselves. We can coexist in a way where we have different ideas and share them with strength 
without it being an attack. So thank you both. Great to have everyone on the Virtual Agile podcast once more. As always, if you enjoy the show, then follow, subscribe, do that stuff that Ryan's learning now how to do on his YouTube channel now <laughs> because it's the best way to catch the new episodes as they land. Thank you again, folks. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things Agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.